For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Oklahoma's hospitals are feeling the pressure as COVID-19 is resurging with more than 10,000 new cases of the coronavirus reported over the Labor Day weekend. Frontline workers are begging Oklahomans to get vaccinated while state officials are remaining mostly quiet. Ryan, how bad can we expect this to get? I think that it's it's really unforeseen at this point how bad it can get. I mean, we don't have to say that it has to get much worse to be a, a dire situation because we are already there. Uh, no ICU beds, uh, overflows at uh, hospital morgues, um, you know, setting up tents uh, to to care for patients, and that's just COVID patients. Um, you know, and we're we're seeing these huge number of COVID patients, but. If you are unlucky enough right now to have to go to an emergency room in Oklahoma for even an unrelated COVID issue, you find yourself in a very desperate situation. I've heard from friends that have had to wait for extraordinarily long times for an ambulance to arrive at a car wreck. Uh, I've seen friends that have had critical surgeries uh, delayed because of uh, a lack of um, uh, hospital services available to them. Um, you know, this is this is a, a real critical moment in the pandemic. And unfortunately, uh, I think that we're, we're all so exhausted from this um, and the, the part the partisanship and, and the political the politicization of covid has really put us in a position where as individuals and even even our leadership, we're really just not stepping up the way that we did last May and which is a, a real uh, real tragedy because last May we would have all given our left arm to have a miracle drug, a vaccine, and now we have three vaccines on the market uh, that provide tremendous uh, protection and prevention. And we should all be doing that right now for each other. Get your vaccination if you can, and if for no other reason, for those folks that can't get it. You know, the the kids out there, the under twelve populations. We all want to get back to school. We all want to get back to work. We all want to get back to our lives. But we can't do that unless we recognize we're in such a dire situation right now and take every step that we can at our at our disposal to mitigate that. Neva. Well, no question. I mean, this uh, this latest wave, I mean, we are seeing uh, all the statistics showing that uh, younger, sicker patients are being treated. All of the impact of the staffing shortages in these hospitals, medical personnel across the board. So you've got this this kind of very bleak uh, situation that we're hearing about every single day. But the backdrop remains the same. I mean, we have a situation in the country where about a quarter of Americans uh, have chosen not to be vaccinated or will or have not yet been vaccinated. We have in Oklahoma, I think the latest statistic I saw was basically we're 50-50. I mean, 50% vaccinated that can be, 50% uh, have chosen not to be. Of, of those groups, uh, the, politici- the, uh, the political uh, atmosphere and the um, kind of intractable nature on both sides is where we're at. And that doesn't appear to uh, be something that's going to change. So we are going to continue to uh, have this debate. We are going to continue to see these statistics. But, you know, we are also seeing some things that uh, kind of, um, you know, add, add um, 
intensity to the mix, I guess I would say, in terms of yesterday, the president uh, issuing his executive order, basically now saying that uh, all executive branch federal employees and federal contractors are being mandated to be vaccinated, be vaccinated or lose your job. So that'll that'll uh, uh, start a whole a whole discussion and debate uh, with respect to that, although this executive order is being put into place, we're we're seeing the we're just seeing folks all over the board uh, in the larger in the public arena for discussion, and yet that is the that's one element to it. But what we don't have is the fact that these statistics in hospitals are real, have to be addressed, and the impact on everything healthcare related uh, is also part of the mix. But we also know that the vaccine would take care of the problem. So if we actually saw maybe state officials doing something, at least what the president is doing, telling people they need to get vaccinated rather than remaining quiet. Governor Stitt has basically hadn't said anything since he got vaccinated back in April, March, something like that. Well, and if you think about, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Neva. No, go ahead, Brian. Uh, they, look at this politeness on here. You don't get this on cable news, <laughs> folks. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you go back to when the governor got vaccinated, um, we were all bragging. The governor was bragging. Everybody was so impressed with Oklahoma's vaccine rates. We were, as, as Governor Stitt would say, a top 10 state. And, and vaccine, uh, you know, that early folks going out and getting those vaccines and our numbers skyrocketed up. We had a vaccine delivery system that was you know, better than every other state's out there almost. Uh, and now we've just we're just hung uh, at this 50 percent level or thereabouts. And we really need some leadership. Um, and that leadership has to come from a political officials, but it also has to come from healthcare professionals that people know and trust. It has to come from friends and family that are willing to sit down and have a hard conversation with, with family members and loved ones uh, that isn't accusatory, that doesn't beat them over the head, uh, but hears them out, but, but makes the case that this is something that we can all do. If you look at hospitalizations, well over 90% of the folks ending up in a hospital right now are ending up there because they are not vaccinated, you know, un, or, uh, and so unvaccinated folks leading hospital admissions and definitely leading uh, COVID fatalities in the state. So we, we need real leadership on this. I, I think it's less about leadership. I mean, the bottom line is it's an individual choice. It, it is a decision that, uh, that each individual is making. And I think what we're seeing is there is a segment of the population, both in Oklahoma and nationally, that have made a choice. They do not want to be vaccinated uh, in this particular instance. And I don't know that we're going to see those numbers change dramatically now. There's been there's been enough time, there's been enough uh, information out there on both sides. And bottom line is, I think we're going to have to recognize that we are not going to be a society that, uh, uh, that is going to be 100% vaccinated or 90% vaccinated. And we're going to have to continue to find a way to uh, keep the economy open to keep uh, to keep the country moving and deal with this uh, in, in the context that we've been dealing with now for you know far beyond a year and we will probably be dealing with it uh, a year from now having these same conversations. The governor Stitt quietly removes the only two physicians on the Oklahoma Health Care Authority. 
Doctors Jean Househair and Laura Shamblin were notified by Stitt's office over the weekend. They will be replaced by marketing specialist Susan Delosso and retired oil executive Gino DeMarco, who also served as Stitt's PPE czar last year. Neva, why do you think Stitt removed these women? Well, I don't know that he's he's made it clear what his decision was, but the the bottom line is the governor has five appointments to the uh, to the board. Uh, the speaker has two appointments. The pro tem has two appointments. So he has control of the board. He made a decision to to make two changes. Uh, uh, certainly has come under fire from uh, uh, many of the the medical groups across the state who uh, have criticized him for that. Uh, uh, feel like that uh, that it was uh, uncalled for. Uh, the the question. You know, in terms of timing, uh, the board voted seven to one to table the emergency rules recently that would have opened the door for them to be able to continue to implement the third party managed care that's been so controversial and and uh, folks on all sides of that issue. But um, so we so we have kind of a struggle, I think, with this uh, agency which most folks, I mean, when we talk about the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority, they don't have much uh, idea of what that really, uh, uh, what that agency really is, is involved with, but they oversee the more than 2 billion with a B uh, taxpayer dollars that serve Oklahoma's most vulnerable citizens. They are responsible for overseeing uh, the uh, Medicaid in the state of Oklahoma. So it is a huge, huge um, uh, agency with a lot of uh, uh, with a lot of folks uh, needing those uh, dollars needing those services so the stability on the board and and where the governor wants to see this go clearly he has made it uh, uh, made it his priority to determine uh, determine who is on the board and I think we're going to see as we've seen with many of these agencies where the governor now has the ability to hire, to fire, to, you know, to be intricately involved in the workings of these agencies, we're seeing um, the result of that uh, in this case with the healthcare authority. Ryan. Well, I think that one of the uh, new appointees, uh, the the former PPEs are for the state, at least he has experience in spending billions of dollars. Now he doesn't always get everything that he wants out of that billions of dollars, but but he certainly has experience in spending billions of, of state dollars. Uh, so may, maybe that's some qualification. I think that it's it's pretty clear here what the governor's motivations were. Uh, I don't, and I, and I know that the governor's office hasn't come out and put out a statement that said, listen, I fired these folks because they made a decision that was contrary to the policy position of my office. I don't think he has to do that. Uh, I think that he, it's, it's clear that he did that because these folks didn't vote the way that he expected them to vote on this important administrative rule uh, or a rule that his administration feels is important for the uh, process forward with managed care. Uh, and I think that the governor can do that without any real fear of, um, you know, any consequences at, at, you know, in a Republican primary, uh, you know, there's, there's, this is not going to beat him in a Republican primary, and it certainly won't beat him in a general election. And so the governor with this new power that's been given to him by the legislature over two years ago now uh, is just exercising that power. Um, and so, you know, I know that Republicans in the legislature right now are many of them not happy uh, with a governor exercising this power, but you know, think back to that time whenever they had an opportunity to not pass the legislation that has now empowered the governor to have this much 
uh, influence over executive agency decision making. Um, now, if you look at you know Senator Greg McCourtney and Representative Marcus McIntyre, they were in the mix, you know, visiting with folks at the Healthcare Authority uh, in the lead up to this vote, talking about whether or not a June Supreme Court decision that came down six three that ruled that the Healthcare Authority did not have the legislative authority to push forward with a managed care option in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, Senators McCourtney and, and Representative McIntyre said, you know, that Supreme Court decision it means you can't move forward, so you shouldn't even act on these administrative rules. The healthcare authority agreed. Now, with two appointees back on there, uh, you know, I think that that vote will probably come back up. We'll see how the votes change there. Um, but I think that it's unlikely that Senator McCourtney and Representative McIntyre, who've been true leaders and, and, and champions against managed care, they're not going to give up that easy. We'll probably see this back in front of the Supreme Court before the end of the year. You know, I thought it was interesting at the Healthcare Authority, uh, their special board meeting um, on August 26th, we had the CEO, Kevin Corbett, uh, make the statement uh, basically to the effect that there had been no decision made on whether the agency would again try to pursue the third party managed care. So uh, there seems to be this big question out there once, as you say, Ryan, once that 6-3 decision by the Supreme Court uh, uh, came came down in June, it seemed to it seemed to change the whole dynamic of this of this conversation. And again, it's one of those highly charged issues with strong opinions on both sides, lots of folks weighing in. We're talking about billions of dollars in terms of what the impact is of who's going to manage care uh, for uh, uh, Oklahomans uh, through the healthcare authority. So it's going to be fascinating to see what happens and whether there's any pressure uh, on the governor or the governor is inclined perhaps to add this to the mix. As we've talked about, we have a special session coming sometime uh, later this fall to have to deal with redistricting. Certainly that call can have anything in it uh, or will they wait until February and start this whole conversation over again? Well, and, and be they a Republican or a Democrat, if you give a governor more power, they're going to use it. And just don't be surprised when they do. And so this is just another example of, of that. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the governor is not going to give in on this. There's no political incentive for him to, to give in. And so we'll see the legislature on one side, the governor on the other, and the Supreme Court in the mix. And there's, you know, there's a uh, a new dynamic on the court, even since that June opinion. We've got a new member on the court now. So you know, that that could change how the Supreme Court looks at this uh, moving forward. An embattled member of Governor Stitt's cabinet is resigning. Secretary of Digital Transformation David Ostro, who was indicted in December for bribery, says he's leaving the seat. The charges were eventually dropped shortly before Attorney General Mike Hunter left his office. Ryan, what are your thoughts on Ostro's exit? Boy, we're, we're getting whiplash. Ostro was in, he was out. Uh, now he's in and then he's back out again. Uh, yeah, I think that it's, you know, Secretary Ostro um, during his entire tenure has tried to manage both a private sector uh, playbook and a public sector uh, playbook. That seems really difficult, if not impossible to do. And I'm sure that when it came down to choosing between going back and, and running a, a food services uh, uh, company that, that he's been doing before he entered government and was apparently very successful at doing um, and, and staying in government uh, and getting, you know, kicked in the head and indicted and all the other stuff that happens whenever you become a public official. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the private sector looks, looks pretty good to it. Um, I think that to, to me, the thing that I'm really going to be watching out of this, because I'm just, I'm not, I'm not surprised, and I don't think anyone else should be, 
uh, surprised either whenever we see somebody from the private sector come into government and then just not stay for their entire life. Um, you know, that's that's you know pretty unusual. Um, but the thing I'm really interested in is whether or not uh, Secretary Ostro is going to continue to pursue litigation uh, against former Attorney General Mike Hunter um, and allegations that uh, former Attorney General Mike Hunter used the multi-county grand jury uh, process uh, improperly uh, and politically uh, in his indictment of Secretary Ostra. I mean, I think that there's a lot to be unpacked there if those allegations against the former Attorney General are true, um, and and could have you know far-reaching impl implications even beyond you know that former administration in the AG's office to the current AG's office. So, if that litigation continues, I think we'll see Secretary Ostra's name again. If not, he'll be you know a, a footnote in the the Stitt administration. Neva. Well, I think, first of all, in taking it in perspective, I mean, Dave, uh, uh, David Ostro, when he came into uh, the position, uh, it was in the first month of the Stitt administration back in uh, January of 2019. Here was a successful businessman uh, who uh, had, uh, you know, had an interest in, you know, kind of accepting the accepting the call for temporary public service. I think, as Ryan said, most of these folks that are coming in are not coming in to be career, you know, politicians or bureaucrats. They're, they're coming in for, for a period of time. And in this instance, uh, with uh, Secretary Ostro's role as the Secretary of Digital Transform Transformation and Administration, you had someone who was really kind of charged with the task of, of uh, changing the delivery access of services in a in a significant way, trying to break down some of the bureaucracy, having more oversight of the uh, state's financial institutions, assuming some of the role of the previous uh, Secretary of Finance position. Uh, so it was a cabinet position that uh, uh, certainly was important and in, in the state administration, one that uh, uh, the governor had placed great value on. And I think, I think what we have seen you know, during the course of um, the time that uh, Ostro was in that position is that uh, here was someone looking at it from a new set of eyes, from a business perspective, from the outside, someone who was interested in seeing change, not just talk about change. And so that ruffles feathers. I mean, particularly with folks in these uh, agencies and in kind of the bureaucracies we talk about, that is slow to change oftentimes. So um, I think in, in kind of stepping back and looking at what has happened, I mean, in his in his attempt to champion transparency, to really kind of tackle this bureaucracy, I think he had some successes. And I think uh, whatever the, the reasons for the timing of the exit, uh, all of the other things that, uh, you know, Ryan has uh, alluded to in terms of uh, other things that are still lingering out there, uh, we'll just have to wait and see how those play out. But uh, the long and the short of it is, uh, this is a classic example of how a cabinet, um, a cabinet role has been played out uh, in the state administration. Well, and if you look at the disruption that occurred to his execution of those duties with the indictment, uh, you know, that, you know, you think of everything that he was doing up to that point, whether you consider it a success or whether you're one of those folks whose feathers he ruffled, um, you know, the, the indictment turned all that on his head, you know, forced him to step back. And that really changed, I think, that his tenure, uh, even whenever he came back and was, you know, felt vindicated, the indictment had been dropped. You know, having that over your head is, is a difficult thing and it, and it paralyzes a lot of your work. And so to come back after something like that um, is, is really, really hard. 
And I think one other point to be made, just to, because I think it is uh, significant to the kind of the conversation is in these type cabinet positions and, and with, with respect to the Ostro appointment, he came in as an unpaid cabinet person. I mean, he came in basically stepping away from his successful uh, restaurant franchise, uh, moved in and uh, kind of, you know, it can let himself be consumed by the, the new role that he was uh, that he was playing in the governor's administration. So I think that uh, I, I think that the long takeaway is that we're going to continue to see folks like this in the cabinet, in these positions, and every governor has a certain mark they want to make in terms of the folks that they want to surround themselves with in their cabinet, in these key positions. And I think the business perspective that uh, that Governor Stitt has brought to office is coming to bear with these types of uh, cabinet appointees. Oklahoma is pushing back its request to execute its first death row inmate since 2015. New Attorney General John O'Connor is telling the Court of Criminal Appeals he wants to execute John Marion Grant on October 28th or November 18th rather than the original date of October 7th. Neva, why this delay? Well, apparently, I mean, the requirement uh, to that an inmate uh, be given 35 days notice uh, before the execution, that uh, timing ap- appeared to be kind of uh in question in terms of being able to go forward with the October 7th date that had been originally requested. So they're making an adjustment in the date. Uh, The uh, Attorney General's office uh, made that uh, request to the uh, uh, Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals uh, this week, and I think uh, we'll see what happens. Obviously, it has been a while since Oklahoma has uh, carried out an execution uh, back in 2015, I believe it was. So uh, there's a there are several um, uh, that are uh, on the uh, on the list to uh, have uh, you know have these executions when they resume. Uh, we'll see what happens moving forward, but uh, clearly uh, clearly it's the intent of the attorney general uh, to uh, move forward on these and and resume executions in a timely fashion. Ryan. Well, it's been since 2015 since Oklahoma has executed someone, and, and, and that execution in 2015 was botched, and you know that that led to uh, multiple stays through different attorney generals and different courts intervening over the last six years uh, that have put us in a situation as a state where we haven't executed someone in over six years in Oklahoma. Uh, and I think that when we look back at that time period, we haven't as a state descended into chaos or a public safety nightmare. Um, and, and instead, you know, you know, it's what we're really doing right now is that we're moving forward <clears throat> with executions without critical understandings of <clears throat> the drugs that are used in the execution process. You know, the state of Oklahoma was essentially you know, buying drugs from a drug dealer on the street uh, at one point uh, and and, you know, doing everything. You know, and had online message boards about trading OU Texas football tickets to the state of Texas for uh, for some of their execution drugs. The execution protocol that we're using as a state is still under question by federal courts. <clears throat> and we have to, and should as a state, whether you're for the death penalty or against it, at least know that if we are going to implement this highest exercise of gov- government authority, there's nothing that any government can do that's more powerful than the power to take the life of one of its people. And so 
you know, when we get to a spot where the attorney general is rushing into this, and that's what we feel like right now, and even though it's been a five-year delay, you know, we had this execution date set last week or, or last month, uh, announced by the governor in the state of the state address to the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce that they were moving forward with this. Um, you know, these are things that I think if if we do want to do this, you know, let's let the judicial system play out and let's know about our drug protocols, but let's also know about our system of capital punishment in Oklahoma. And let's be confident that the people that are that we're seeing equitable use of capital charges against individuals, um, that we're seeing that, you know, in, you know, that because we just don't see that in Oklahoma, there's discrimination, both implicit and overt, that happens in the death penalty system in Oklahoma. Um, there's you know, whether or not which county you live in determines whether or not you get uh, a capital charge. Um, you know, how much money you've got, whether you can hire a lawyer, whether you're depending on a public defender or an OIDS counsel that's overworked and can't give you the kind of attention that you need in a capital case, uh, to actually looking at questions of potentially executing innocent people like Julius Jones. Uh, if you look at that execution list that the attorney general's office has requested, number two on that list is Julius Jones, a man that uh, by all intents is innocent and sitting on death row um, and in waiting for an important decision by the partner pro board, and then hopefully ultimately Governor Stitt, uh, that could save their life. Uh, again, whether you're in favor of capital punishment or not, uh, I think that we should all agree that we want a system that works. And we're seeing more and more folks, not just you know liberal Democrats, but we've seen Republicans in the legislature mm -hmm. step into this breach as well to say this is a conversation we need to face up to. And even I was going to say Julius Jones is on the list and there were many Republicans uh, lawmakers who have stepped forward and in, in support of Julius Jones commentation. I think we're going to have we're always going to have that in this in this discussion when we're talking about uh, the uh, possible execution of, of a of an inmate. But I think going back to some of the things that Ryan was talking about, first of all, it is the state's contention that they do now have a reliable source uh, for their uh, lethal injection drug. That has been a long process. It has certainly been one that they have been very deliberate on. So this is not some knee jerk, we've just gone out and found something, you know, kind of deal. This is something that uh, that they put in place. When you look at the, uh, the list of these uh, uh, seven on the list right now, uh, the attorney general, you know, has asked for these execution dates for seven inmates. This comes after a federal judge ruled that six of those no longer qualified to be part of a federal lawsuit that was challenging the protocols, challenging these uh, these drugs. And the seventh had not been part of the lawsuit. So there is a process. There's a legal process for all parties uh, in this. And I think what we're seeing is a very deliberate very thoughtful movement toward resuming executions in the state of Oklahoma, which, as we've talked about through the years, I mean, this is something that uh, uh, that Oklahomans uh, do do favor the option of having, you know, the death penalty used in the cases where that has been the uh, that has been the determination. So we'll see what happens with the timeline moving forward. But uh, clearly, there are a lot of things moving that will uh, likely put this back in 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 uh, place for the state to resume executions uh, in the near future. And Eva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.